Welcome to the Hands in Motion podcast, brought to you by the American Society of Hand Therapists. Here we will discuss all things upper extremity therapy, from assessment to treatment, the latest research, the patient experience, and other topics related to the field of upper extremity rehab. Learn more and subscribe today at ASHT.org. Welcome back to Hands in Motion. On this episode, we are joined by Jim Wagner to discuss blood flow restriction and its application to upper extremity rehab. Jim discusses the science behind blood flow restriction, how it can be utilized in the rehab setting, and how it can benefit our patients. Welcome to Hands in Motion, Jim. So we have Jim with us tonight. We're so happy you're able to join us and give us a brief introduction of yourself about where you're working at in practice, how much education you're doing as far as teaching and instructing, and the floor is yours. I just want to say thank you for having me on tonight. This is great. I really appreciate it. I love being part of the ASHT and meeting people uh, all over the place uh, like yourself and having the opportunity just to talk about some of the fun things I get to do and speak on. So again, my name is Jim Wagner. I'm an occupational therapist. I've been in clinical practice for about 28 years now. Graduated from Cuca College in the Finger Lakes, where I teach there now as an adjunct professor, uh, teaching things like kinesiology, and we'll do a cervical to hand differential diagnosis course, some of the early clinical courses for them. I am our team leader for our Guthrie uh, Hand Center in Sarah, Pennsylvania, kind of on the New York State Pennsylvania border. So we have a big, like five hospital system or something like that now. We used to start out with just me there, and now we have nine therapists and uh, three hand surgeons in our area. So it's super great to see that morph into something awesome over the years. So I am, again, an occupational therapist. I got my OTD from Rocky Mountain University, a health professions uh, a while back with an emphasis in, yeah, emphasis <laughs> in the upper quarter. Big shout out to all you RMU HU grads. <laughs> yes, I'm a fellow grad. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, uh, Kristen Valdez and Tampa Merrick are my graduate professors. Oh, myself as well. Yay. That's awesome. <laughs> and I've been into strength and conditioning. My claim to fame, I always say this, it's kind of funny. I did my first teenage bodybuilding competition at 15. I came in fourth place out of four people. So I, that was my, <laughs> <laughs> so I, I got the bug for uh, strength and conditioning and weight training and uh, have been in over, I think, 29 competitions, powerlifting and bodybuilding over the years, have been a strength and conditioning specialist for a while now. I love that and I love incorporating that into my programs exercise for our patients. And I think that's so important. And this topic of BFR, it really just has kind of been one that's been intriguing to me. And I love to integrate this into practice. So so I have heard a couple different terms being passed around between BFRT, BFR, and a couple other things. What exactly is BFR or BFRT? So BFR and BFRT are basically the same thing. So blood flow restriction training, um, blood flow restriction, Really, it's been around since I think like the early 70s, uh, maybe a little bit earlier, but the uh, Japanese powerlifter, Sato, and really kind of played around with the use of including some blood flow to his lower extremities. He was in cast for a long period of time because of skiing injury. So they found over a period of time when he was sitting in this seizure position for a long period of time, you know, when you stand up after a while, you feel like your feet are asleep. And then you also get this flush of blood and rush that's back to the nervous system and stuff like that. It began to notice that going around with some certain things, he got that feeling that heavy, like he'd been working out for a long period of time, that there was a significant decrease in disuse atrophy after he'd been immobilized for a period of time. And so he's kind of considered the father of blood flow restriction therapy. So it's been around for a while and has really gone through a big morph process over the years, mostly in Europe, and then has finally come across and got 
bigger in the 80s across the pond and into the United States. I'd say over the last maybe five to 10 years has been a, a pretty big explosion in the amount of research that's been done on blood flow restriction training and is one of the most researched topics, I think, that are out there in our uh, repertoire bag of tools today. So again, there's a lot of evidence that points to its efficacy in rehab. So what is the goal? What are you looking to accomplish using this technique? What really blood flow restriction training is, and it sounds scary. And actually for a little while, first, I didn't dive into it a little bit because you get this thought process, oh, I'm going to restrict blood somewhere in the extremities and it's going to somehow make you better. So I did a little bit of research and dug into some things for a while before I began. And now I'm actually teaching blood flow restriction training using the B-Strong system. There's multiple systems out there and they're all great. I think it's one of the things you just have to make sure you know what type of product you're going to use and what are the safety recommendations for it. So really what it is, it's use of a band or a cuff. And there is a difference between a band or a cuff. Various size, uh, there's various widths. There's elastic, pneumatic, inelastic, wider cuffs, wider inelastic cuffs. And really what that does is that's wrapped around the extremity, the upper extremity or lower extremity to slow the arterial inflow and restrict, completely restrict or occlude. That's where you get that occlusion training, the superficial and deep veins, the outflow. What that does is you create an accumulation of lactic acid. You get an acidic environment. It's distal to that band or cuff in the upper extremity or lower extremity. An increase in metabolic stress that leads to this deep burning type of fullness, this muscle pump that you would normally get under heavy loads. So what happens is that metabolic stress tricks the brain into releasing growth hormones and increasing protein synthesis. But what it does, that's on a global cascade, central nervous system effect, but distal to the band or cuff, you get this local effect where you get a greater recruitment, the type one oxidative muscle fibers that are needed for everyday work and, and stability and have a lot of needed out of endurance. Those shut down super fast. They get burnout really quick because the oxygen and the blood flow is limited to those muscles. So the oxygen consumption is lower and they start to recruit the type two fibers that are more anaerobic that usually are recruited under heavier loads. So those are the ones that you're 75 to 85% of your one rep max, the ones that we don't really touch a whole lot in rehab. And so I say that because we all say we're doing strengthening, but when it comes down to it, we're probably not doing a lot of significant strengthening. We're probably doing a whole lot more neuromuscular re-education with our patients than really to get into that muscle hypertrophy and those types of things. So what happens with that local effect, it creates the, they call this metabolic crisis or disturbance of homeostasis. And I can explain that a little bit more later. And with that, it shuts those muscle fibers down. And so now you get that effect of heavier load exercise without doing the weight, without having the load, which can cause tissue damage. And so you can get that, do that earlier with some of your post-operative patients that you normally wouldn't be able to get. So you wouldn't be able to reach those loads because of tissue damage and those types of things. You get the same effect of muscle hypertrophy and that release of growth hormone that you would normally get under heavy loads now with a much lighter load without the risk of tissue damage. So Jim, how does that look or what does that look like in the clinic setting? So maybe give us an example of a diagnosis and how you would utilize this in your treatment session. How would you set it up or like what exercise you might perform with the cuff or the band on? Yeah. One of the most important things is to know when you get ready to delve into this, there really is some neat effects that occur and some biohacks. And now uh, we were just talking a few seconds ago and Carr was all excited about the iron woman that just made a big record in what, eight hours or something like that. There's great biohacks. And this is kind of a great biohack that can help our patient achieve that muscle hypertrophy that normally is a slow process. Muscle growth takes six, seven weeks. And most of the time, at least, 
requires a lot of good support for that, different type of load. So in the clinic, once you know what particular product you're going to use and its recommendations, manufacturer's recommendations, some of the clinical diagnosis that I've used them with have been, which I like to use them a lot with, is some of our biceps tendon repairs, those ones that we can begin to actively move earlier on, especially if they have a nice secure endo button repair. I've also used them a lot for my rotator cuff repairs, total shoulder replacements, even And there hasn't been a lot of ink spilled on this that I can find, but there is some emerging research in the effects of blood flow restriction and tendon adaptations. So I'm being interested to do a little more with tendinopathy patients. So there's some really cool stuff that's out there. So I might go ahead and start out when my patient is ready to be able to actively exercise, when they're safe and clear to exercise. And even when they're not ready to go through maybe a significant amount of motion, I'll apply the band or the cuff, whatever product I'm using at the prescription that is set forth by the manufacturer. And then we'll go ahead and utilize that. So we can actually get some effects of hormonal release and cascade release without putting that tissue at damage. And the patients seem to really like it. They shouldn't have any pain associated with this at all. I explained it to them like, this is just going to restrict a little bit of your venous outflow. You're going to feel that muscle pump at a much higher rate than you normally would. And those muscles are really going to drop out. We've had a couple of our local law enforcement guys that come in and maybe have a bicep tendon repair. And these guys are loving the pump that they feel during that particular treatment. And it really helps to kind of get them the confidence they need to get back into their activities when they're ready and they can begin to sustain that load early on. What kind of exercises do you have patients do? I just imagine like doing squats and biceps curls and like in the gym kind of work. Yeah. And I train with them myself. There's nothing that I use with my patients. I don't care if it's a shoulder warm up or whatever they're doing or stretching a program or dynamic that I don't use myself. So I've utilized these for quite some years now. Most all the major products that are on, or at least tested them out on the market right now from Delphi units to Be Strong to Smart Tools to Smart Cuffs, some other things that are out there. What you do is you can, whatever exercise you want to do, you can work out with them. So for example, it's based on what you're trying to achieve. Usually, again, though the American College of Sports Medicine's guidelines, usually for strength of hypertrophy is you need to hit that 75 to 80% one rep max. So again, it's not always sustainable for our patients. So early on, what they do is the rep and set scheme is a little bit differently. So usually it's a higher number of repetitions with a very low rest period in between each set. A lot of the research is focused on starts out with 30 repetitions, and then they use a 30-second rest, and then 15, a set of 15, a set of 15, a set of 15. And then they move on to the next exercise. So what that is, is that 30 repetitions really fatigues out that motor unit very fast. Then it calls for greater recruitment. So I will do whatever the same exercises that I normally might do for my particular patients, whatever it might very well be, whether it be band exercises, whether it be total body, whether it be an isolated movement, this is a bicep curl or tricep extension or a forearm exercise or grip strengthening. I'll do just modify the rep and set scheme based on what you're trying to achieve with your patient. And so again, it would be a very low load. So about 25 to 30% of your one rep maximum. So you're not going heavy with your patients at all. So it's very light. And you'll notice, again, this fullness, this thickness, this, and we've all had that muscle pump we trained before and you get that fullness, like that vascularity. So this is basically that level at a higher rate. And again, they feel that flush. And there are basically five things that I always have people look for. I call them my five Ps. So there should be no pain. There should be a pulse. There should be good color, pallor, no paresthesias, and good performance with all the exercise. So once you observe your patient and watch how they're doing, because you're looking for muscular 
signals or fatigue signals with your patient to make sure they have a moderate fatigue signal where they're still exercising really well, good performance, but they're still able to perform the load over a period of time. And you can start with something as little as uh, five minutes and work your way up to 15, 20 minutes if you want to during your session right there. And some of my patients that can't do, if I have them doing someone with a rotator cuff repair, maybe I'll start that can't move early on. I'll start with BFR anyways, and maybe do some grip work early on. Why? Because if you remember I said earlier, even with, you say, oh, why am I using it with my rotator cuff repairs? There is a cascade, a hormonal cascade, a release of growth hormone, insulin-derived growth factors, vascular endothelial growth factors that stay in the blood supply for much longer because of that call for greater recruitment. So those are great things. And they actually have some really good studies that show a significant increase in strength on the contralateral side without even touching that. So that goes to show that we see this hormonal cascade that happens throughout the body. So that's a nice benefit at the same time. It works out well. And I think there's one study I was looking at that the growth hormone stayed for up to three to four hours longer in the post-BFR workout at about 170%. So it was very, very high. And one thing that we've seen also in those patients, it stimulates the mTOR pathway, the mammalian target of rampamycin. And this basically, it's meant for a protein synthesis, cell health and regulation. And so there's a significant upregulation of protein synthesis. And what's even interesting in this is there's some neat studies that take a look at and show a downregulation in this hormone called myostatin. So myostatin is the body's natural way of decreasing muscle mass. So you'd say, why would we have something like that to decrease muscle mass? Well, what happens is if we didn't have that, we'd all look like Arnold Schwarzenegger all the time. We'd just like be some jacked monsters because the body wants to maintain homeostasis. So the research has shown again that this myostatin or this myokine is produced and it downregulates that for a period of time to allow an increase in muscle hypertrophy. It's really cool. So some people actually call it a biohack, again, in almost like a fountain of youth type of thing or whatever. So it's really kind of cool. So again, it really decreases that myostatin overexpression and allows for a greater upregulation of protein synthesis. You sing that fountain of youth, we're all going to be walking around with cuffs on our arms <laughs> and our legs and searching for that fountain of youth. <laughs> it still takes some work and exercise. You still got to do the work. But what it is, is it's really a nice way of engaging our patient earlier on for better outcomes. It can be a very safe treatment, very effective. It is a very safe treatment, very effective treatment. I was trained by Dr. Jim Stray Gunderson, who was one of the country's first Katsu masters. I forget how long ago it was. I don't know if it was 2016 or something like that, however, in Park City, Utah at the U.S. ski team facility out there. It was pretty awesome. And really, Katsu just means additional pressure. Again, we're not completely including arterial inflow. And so that's why it's important to know your product when it comes to this, is if your product the product you use, they've shown that a wider, more inelastic cuff decreases arterial inflow at much lower rates. And we know that with blood pressure cuffs, we put those on there and they pump those babies up and we shut down the arterial inflow at 150 millimeters of mercury. So what they've done with these products now, there's some of them that are taught to not occlude, but very safe and still be blood flow restriction training. And you'll see now there's a lot of debate about these things called LOP and AOP, which is a limb occlusion pressure or arterial occlusion pressure. Some camps say, oh, you have to have an 80% limb occlusion pressure. So what you do is if your product occludes, you've got to know when you first occlude, when you shut down that blood flow, you take a calculation of what's 80% of that, and that's where you're going to train. However, we've seen in the literature over the last three to five years that we've seen improvements in BFR with 
pressures as low as 30% all the way to 80%. So you don't truly, if you have a product that doesn't include, I've had these B-Strong bands on my upper arm and I've trained with them and they put them all the way up to 500 millimeters of mercury and I still can't occlude my arterial inflow. And then I've had a regular wide blood pressure cuff put on there and it shuts it down to about 150 millimeters of mercury, 160, somewhere in there. The point is, and there's some great ones, rock cuffs is another one there that has a safety mechanism built into them. So you can't truly occlude. If you put something around your arm or leg tight enough and hard enough, you're going to shut down some blood flow. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And who wants to do that, right? That's not fun. But if you do it and if you have some education, understand the physiology behind it and how to integrate it into your practice, it really can help you reach those benefits for the patient at a much faster rate than you normally would. So what are some of the contraindications for using this treatment technique? So when you think about this, you're like, oh my gosh, I don't want to include any blood. And I don't even call it occlusion therapy. I call it blood flow restriction training and just give my quick elevators pitch about it and stuff like that. And then just put it on the patient. But some of the things, again, like sickle cell anemia, we don't want to starve the tissue of any blood. Windows things of any blood clots, especially, you know, if they're not been treated, those types of things, severe uncontrolled hypertension. So you want to be controlled. Uh, there are some people that claim you can't use this with hypertensive patients. Well, I was hypertensive for a long time. I was on lisinopril, changed my eating habits, done a lot better. And I trained with blood flow restriction training all during that time. And I'm off it now. And I'm not saying that's what made the difference. Point is, is though, we all exercise sometimes in a pre-hypertensive state. Our blood pressure can fluctuate high amounts throughout the day and low amounts throughout the day, depends on whether standing, lying down or whatever. So again, PVDs, dialysis ports, those types of things, diabetes, those things are more precautions, again, forget the sensory aspect of things. But there's been some research with type 1 diabetics and even with peripheral neuropathies with those that they're showing because of the expression of vascular endothelial growth factors and insulin-derived growth factors, we see an increase in angiogenesis. So we got a healing of those vessels. So it's really, there's some really freaking cool stuff. It's really neat. If your patient isn't safe to exercise, if they're not ready to go, then they're not safe for BFR. So I think that's one of the biggest things. And I've used it with people as young as 13, and I've used it with people as much as in their 80s. So like, oh, lymphedema is another one. We don't put that on. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Those are some things like that. So again, I think those are the main ones right there. But I have heard of people using, I haven't personally, because I haven't had that patient, of using it in the contralateral side. And in some of our cases, again, if you can't use it in that extremity, I've banded the lower extremities and the opposite side of the injured area. Why? To get that neural cascade of hormonal effects from the exercise. I'm very much a holistic clinician too as well. So I teach my patients to squat. Some of them can't get up out of a chair. That's very therapy oriented. It's very occupational therapy or physical therapy or whatever you're in. So we want to get people moving. So I teach them how to hinge. And I'll do that sometimes and try to get glute activation and paraspinal stuff and try to get them up and get them moving. So if they're not able to use that injured arm just yet, I'll go ahead and ban those other areas as long as they're safe to do that and then exercise. There's actually some interesting studies coming out about them using it just around with the elderly population to mitigate age-related sarcopenia during ADLs, walking around for a certain period of time throughout the day. They've shown, I think it was a four to six week cycle of use of BFR in the elderly population was greater than 65. And they showed a significant reduction in or improvement in bone mineral density. So it helps to stimulate. So there's some really cool stuff that's emerging and coming out with this. Have you found or had any difficulty getting payment for this treatment at all as far as reimbursement or trouble with insurances covering this technique? This is not a billable technique. 
So the products are, when it comes out to them, are all across the gamut. They can be, and I'll just say this, you can get them for $25 on Amazon to thousands of dollars to these pump ones that monitor your blood pressure throughout the whole treatment. This is an adjunct to therapy that goes along with it. So it's something a lot of, um, I was ju- I just did a blood flow restriction course and just a disclosure, I do teach the B-Strong system for hawk grips. Uh, I have done quite a bit of that. But I also am an equipment agnostic guy too. I like to look at other pieces of equipment and how they utilize it because a lot of them are great. You just have to know what you're using. So it's up to the clinician to decide to do that. This is an adjunct to exercise. So I either include it with my therapeutic exercise. I might can make a gains for neuromuscular re-education with this if I wanted to. And I could put it in with my therapeutic exercise. Based on, again, your system, how much you want to cost and what you look at for efficacy and safety, you pick your system and go from there. Interesting side note, which I find to be really offensive. Uh, maybe this has changed, but New York State basically recently just banned physical therapists from utilizing blood flow restriction training. It said it's not in their practice act. I haven't seen anything from the AOTA and for the OT aspect of things. I use it, and I would think that'd be a total affront to the physical therapy profession. Because right after that happened, I had a patient bring in their own BFR stretch band, which I don't know where they got it from. They got it off Amazon. Wanted to know if I could show them how to use it. So you have an untrained he was a runner, untrained individual who read out of the men's health magazine some of the effective blood flow restriction training, come in and ask me, he bought it online. And now you can't allow our skilled physical therapists with an in-depth education of muscle physiology, exercise physiology, and sports performance to utilize it because it's not the scope of practice. To me, that sounds stupid. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That was going to be my next question. Are there any disciplines that are not able to incorporate this or use this from their tool bag? You said, obviously, New York. Yeah, I think it goes on, a, again, a state-by-state association Why there, there are some position statements that have come out. I think, if I remember correctly, the AOTA is very vague on it. What happens a lot of times, they're very vague on it. And you should have some education. You should have some training. I find when people, is it at a patient, maybe two months ago, bought an ultrasound unit online. Yeah, even like the cupping and, you know, some of the other modality things that we do too there. Like, oh, I'm going to try this. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> but, you know, then we get restricted on how to use it. I think you have to check out your state practice act just to make sure to cover yourself. And I find that whatever camp you subscribe to, be a part of their educational process and understand what product you're utilizing. Again, is it an elastic wide cuff that has an occlusion effect to it? Or is it a more of a more narrow? And again, you don't want the, cut the band to be too narrow either that has a stretch component to it that has a safety mechanism built in so it can occlude. So it depends upon what you're utilizing. And then again, it just comes down to safety and it comes down to your programming, your reps and sets and those types of things based on where your patient is in the rehab process. And you can use it multiple times a week. I've used it again, several times a week with my patients when they first come in, it might be in your rehab two to three times a week from 10 to 20 minute sessions. Again, you're a higher repetition, low load, 25 to 30% one rep max with less rest in between there. You might use it for recovery and a deloading phase and maybe a sports performance way or performance enhancement where I had a high school girl who was a a D1 lacrosse player who I banded all four extremities with when she got done with her bank heart repair or shoulder or whatever. Man, I was kicking her butt there in the gym to get her back on plan. And we did 30 minutes of all four extremities banded at more of an endurance activity. And she was a 17-year-old machine. She's going to be a little bit different than our, you know, 72-year-old, untrained, reverse total shoulder repair or something like that. So when you talk about like a shoulder patient, obviously you're placing the cuff distal to that. Does it matter where? 
Like, do you pull out a tape measure and say, I'm going to go seven centimeters above the elbow or, or whatever? Like, does that matter? There's only two places that it can go. There's only two places. You, there's nowhere else. And it's on the, around the brachial artery, just around the deltoid tuberosity of the upper part of the arm, just below in the axle in that area. And again, one of the things you want to make sure to encourage with these things is the facilitation of the muscle pump. You want to allow whatever product you have full motion. Because when you occlude that, you increase intrafusal fiber pressures and those types of things along top of that. Then you have a higher risk of, at some point, maybe like rhabdo or something like that, if they're not getting good. You know, you want perfusion. So I want that blood to be slowed on the way in, not allowed to move out, but that muscle pump pushes it past that venous blockade. So that's what happens. So the upper arm and then an angle area in the lower extremity. So right around the very below the gluteal fold in the back or where the glutes meet the hamstring, that crease there, they wrap around there. Tomorrow is my leg day after my kines class at CUCA. Shout out to my kines students at CUCA. I'm going to go to the gym and it's my lower extremity day. So I'm going to be doing my bands there at about 350, 350 millimeters of mercury. And I'm probably going to do a 30 minute workout. And I know body weight workout because I'm in a recovery phase. I'm always in a recovery phase. (laughs) (laughs) That I'm going to get a complete total body workout with that. that. You'll get an increase in respiration, but not to the point where it's anything more exaggerated than regular exercise. So there was a paper that came out where there was a call I was concerned about this presser reflex, which was an increase in an arterial pressure due to exercise. And that they thought that that may be exaggerated with the BFR, but they found it only to be in wide inelastic cuffs. And it's not as much of a concern as they thought. So, but those are the only areas you can put those in. You can band one arm, two arms, all four. When you think you're ready to go, the more you band, the greater the taxing is going to be on the system. Most of the time in the clinic, I either do one upper extremity, the opposite extremity, or one or the other, or both in the upper extremities. And then some of my athletes, which I don't get a ton of, I get some, I have some power lifters and some of those guys that come in and some of my high school athletes, I'll put all four of them on when they're ready to go back and rehab. So, but again, that's going to be uh, the higher level athlete that's doing that. But again, there are some great studies coming out looking at the use of blood flow restriction training with age-related sarcopenia to mitigate that in some of our patients that can't tolerate heavy load exercise again. So if any of the listeners out there, if they want to learn more about this technique, what are your recommendations? I know you had referenced earlier about formal education, maybe taking a course. That's the first part of the question. And then what equipment, you mentioned the bands, but are there any other equipment that's necessary to have in your clinic to be able to implement this technique at all? If you're looking for some literature on this to begin with, all you have to do is do a quick Google search and put in blood flow restriction training. The International Journal of Sports PT is free. Journal of Strength and Conditioning, Journal of Strength and Conditioning Research has a lot of ink spilled on that. I highly recommend just taking uh, Frontiers in Physiology. There's a couple of great position papers on that that are open source and free. Just going on there and doing a quick lit search, you're going to find a plethora of them. But I would start with that. And then if you have a particular clinic that has a particular product that they like to utilize first, that they want to use for whatever reason, some use the Delphi unit and they will use it. You need to make sure that you subscribe to that particular product's manufacturer's use because you can't go one day, use smart tools and all of a sudden turn the next day and use a different one off because they're different mechanical properties to the cuff or band. And so each one of those is going to have an impact on the biological tissue a little bit differently because of its mechanical properties. So again, I have a couple different types out in my garage gym that I utilize. I tried for quite a while. Some like a Delphi unit requires the use of a blood pressure cuff that's hooked right to it all the time. And it monitors your blood pressure and gives it individualized limb occlusion pressure. 
Others have like smart tools. I think smart cuffs. I think they still have a Doppler that will try to find the brachial artery pulse or the pedal pulse in the tarsal tunnel. That's very hard to find that. And to tell you the truth, I've tried to find the brachial artery pulse sometimes that sucker can't find that thing. What I found is, is that these great senses that we have, observation, observation, and observation really help us <laughs> understand what's going on with a patient. So if we can observe our patient and know what these fatigue signals are, and that's what I'll tell you here in a second, I'll talk about the disturbance of homeostasis so you can understand what that is for the listeners, is once they follow that, an educational course would be good for them to take. I think it's not good that they're selling these things online to people that don't even know. I had a guy come in and he came in with me and he, I have a picture of it that I used in my presentation. He put it in the mid-bicep area, tanked it down hard and said, yeah, I got it on. I think I'm doing it right. My fingers go numb sometimes. Like, <laughs> wow. You're doing something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You're including something. <laughs> yeah. You're including something. And a friend of mine who is a jujitsu guy who has done a lot of great stuff with Northeast seminars, taking a look at rock cuffs and stuff like that, told me when we first started getting into it, he actually got a palsy from it. So he had probably a radial, radial nerve palsy from putting that on so tight. And so you have to know what you're doing with this stuff. I think that that's a huge part to that first, because and no matter what you do, you can hurt somebody with therapeutic exercise or somebody with an ultrasound. I mean, Jeepers, some states allow you to dry needle. So you're not just going to go do that without some kind of education. Once that's done, knowing your product, does it include or doesn't it include? What are the safety manufacturer recommendations? I think to actually tell you the truth, the biggest thing is then putting it into practice and then starting slow with it. Pick a patient to begin with, follow them on a regular basis with it. Again, follow those five Ps, pain, pulse, performance, paresthesias, and pallor. Make sure all those are good and just see them progress. I'll actually get measurements around the biceps and the forearm. And I'll get that also on the opposite side, the contralateral side, and get a grip strength on both sides. And I had this happen with when one of my first patients I did this with. And I used a couple of different products to try out with him and let him pick which one he wanted to utilize. But I actually saw a 70-some percent increase in grip strength on the contralateral side. So, I mean, it was a big increase in grip strength. One, he had been working as he had a, a biceps tendon repair, re-repair that I got him the second time around. And we saw a nice improvement in his motion. Doc didn't want him to do anything heavy early on. So I asked him if he could do this and we started it and had a great outcome with it. So have you had a good response from your referring providers that know that you're utilizing this or have any of them been cautious and kind of question what you're doing with their patient? I don't think I've had either or with that. I haven't had a negative response from them. I think that there's a point now that they trust me enough and they trust our expertise that they know that they feel comfortable when they come to us, that we're going to take care of them. I did just teach at a place where they actually lost referrals because they didn't teach blood flow. They didn't treat using blood flow restriction. The orthopedic sports medicine doc sent them to another competitor in the area because they didn't know how to do it yet. That was the first I heard of that. So I think what happens is it's one of these treatments that the patient's response speaks for itself. Again, just like whether it be manual therapy or instrument assisted or whatever you're doing, this shouldn't cause pain to our patient. This should be something that improves them overall and gives them an edge up to succeed in a long run of their case. So again, following those guidelines, this should be something like, oh man, and most of my people that have utilized it, they're like, I have had a couple people, and I use for example, where I did back off on it a little bit. And the reason is, is because this uh, recently, a uh, patient who had an endo button bicep tendon repair, but they had a real radial nerve irritation that came down through. I think they had either an irritation of the arcade of Froch, uh, the supinator was real irritated in that particular area. We utilized it early on and they had some didn't have any of the five P's when I was utilizing with them. But within a couple hours after, they started to get some real dorsal radial sensory nerve irritation. 
So I backed off, did some neural mobilization stuff with them, and then that calmed that down and got to move and then went back to utilizing that again. And then they would kind of pull back up. So there are times you'll have to say, oh, I'm going to hold off on this just out of caution. Pick your patient at the right time. It's not something that's an end all to be all. I'm not that type of clinician where, oh, this is, man, you're going to use it with every patient. It's picking the right patient at the right time in the right recovery phase that you'll have better outcomes with the patient. It's the why behind what you're doing instead of just doing something blank with everybody. So, but I do believe, I do know it's been used as a marketing tool. And there was an interesting case, I think it was out of Pennsylvania. I actually had the video, I wish I had kept it, where someone had was trying to show that they were utilizing blood flow restriction training. And someone showed me the article and showed me the video. It was on the news. And the person that said, oh, yeah, it worked really well. My foot was really numb and it was really painful. But other than that, it was really good. Oh, no. <laughs> That's terrible. <laughs> oh, gosh. Probably not a great marketing tool, but... No, <laughs> no. <laughs> not at all. You shouldn't have pain. You shouldn't have pain. Your foot shouldn't go numb. So <laughs> you should have pain in the upper extremity. Your hand shouldn't go numb. So it's another tool where you can explore and you don't have to be afraid of it. I think we're really fearful of that stuff. And as long as some good training and you feel comfortable, we go back to that whole idea of this thing they call this disturbance of homeostasis. So what that really is, and we're looking for that metabolic crisis, what that is, is that it's a reduction in oxygen and increase in pH or a reduction in pH. We get this increase in this lactic acid and lactic acid. It's not, that doesn't produce muscle soreness. That's a byproduct of that anaerobic glycosis, that breakdown of that tissue and stuff like that, that shows it. So we get that decrease in oxygen, the decrease in ATP in that acidic environment that shuts down those type one fibers and recruits that. That's what you feel. So um, Carl, you guys, your exercisers, you know what it looks like to feel that fatigue, that burn. You'll just feel that at a much higher rate, much faster. And some products that are more aggressive in their design of the product may feel that earlier on again. So what we just take a look at is again, this fatigue factor is, can they perform that exercise effectively without failing in good performance and following the prescribed amount of exercises, rep sets that we're looking for. So we always look for this moderate fatigue signal with our patients. If they come in and they're like, oh, I don't feel anything. I'm like, this is easy. Then what I might do is increase the millimeters of mercury because I use a pneumatic barrel design band. And then the next time around, maybe put 50 extra millimeters of mercury and see how they perform. They say, yeah, well, that feels really good. I got a good fatigue. I'm really pretty tired with it, but I can still do really well then I'll probably keep it right around that, that particular level. So you monitor your patient. And that's what's one of the most important things. I don't put this on them and let them go. I don't do that with any of my patients. I watch them throughout the exercise program. I'm there with them. They're paying me to be with them. So I think we hit everything we needed to hit. Is there anything else you wanted to include in closing? Or I do ask, is it possible to give us maybe two or three references for some evidence articles that we can include in the show notes? There's some good ones. And again, there's meta-analysis, systematic reviews, and those types of things that, that are out there that I can send to you to put in, in those, and I'll get those taken care of ASAP. I would say the biggest thing with blood flow restriction training is that it's a really novel way to make strength gains in the clinic, that when you have some good training and understand about muscle physiology and understand a few of the contraindications, precautions can really be a nice adjunct in your treatment tool bag. So that is something that can help not only your patients maximize their outcomes, and especially when it comes to general strength and endurance and muscular hypertrophy. Also, I found in my own personal life that I utilize them, I would say, on a pretty regular basis for my own fitness regime and stuff in my own personal aspect of things too. It's a great tool and there's a lot of great evidence behind it. And I think when used correctly, it can be a nice technique to put in your tool bag. Well, great. Thanks so much for joining us this evening. I know we appreciate it, Kara and I. And 
I think our listeners will definitely find this episode very interesting. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Hands in Motion brought to you by the American Society of Hand Therapists. You can listen on the ASHT website and or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, including Apple, Google, Amazon Music, and Spotify. Once subscribed, please rate and review the podcast to help us reach new listeners and to continue offering valuable, relevant content. You've been listening to Hands in Motion, brought to you by the American Society of Hand Therapists. To learn more about ASHT and to subscribe to the show, please visit ASHT.org. We'll see you next time on the Hands in Motion podcast.